As we turn to the reading of scripture, let us pray. God, illuminate our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word proclaimed, our eyes may see your kingdom, our ears may hear the call of Jesus, and our hearts may know the joy of your salvation. Amen. Our scripture reading today is from the letter to 1 Corinthians. We begin in verse 10 of chapter 1 and go through verse 18. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. My brothers and sisters, what I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent words, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the Lord. The cross of Christ changed everything. Let me say it again. The cross of Christ changed everything. That is the simple yet profound truth. The cross that we represent as gold or silver or wooden pendants around our neck that we stitch on stoles and pillows and banners, that we display on walls and tables. The cross of Christ changed everything. Do we believe this truth? Do I believe this truth? Do you believe this truth? I mean, really, really believe this truth. Believe it so much that it permeates every thought and every action. If I'm being honest with you, my answer to that question is more like 
the answer that the possessed boy's father gave to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. You may remember the story. Jesus has been healing people, particularly people who are demon-possessed. And so a desperate father brings his son for healing. Except when he gets there, Jesus is up on a mountain and the disciples are the only one there. And they try, they, they try to heal the boy, but they fail. And when Jesus returns to the scene, he returns to an argument about why this is so. And the father pipes up and says that he believes Jesus can do it if Jesus is able. Jesus responds, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes, to which the, res the father responds, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe in the power of the cross, Jesus, help my unbelief. We want to believe. We glimpse the light of changed reality at times. We glimpse it as we join together in worship. We glimpse it as we serve together and as we are served. We glimpse it in the stories of others as they share the love of God. But then we turn on our television and we see the news and we hear of wars and rumors of wars, of corruption and oppression, of growing divisions, of fires and earthquakes and storms. Did the cross of Christ change everything? We wonder. And we waver a bit. We don't give up the belief entirely. We have a tendency just to modify it slightly. The Apostle Paul understood this tendency and addressed it in many ways in his letters to the early Christian churches. In his letter to the Corinthians, he reminds the young church of the power of the cross. Paul had nurtured a deep relationship with this church. He started a congregation in the city on his second missionary journey and spent 18 months with them ministering and working, teaching them. He left because a group of Jews filed a suit against him and he had to go. The city of Corinth thrived on trade and worship of Greek gods. Sitting at an intersection of land trade and sea trade, the city, which had been rebuilt only about 100 years before Paul shows up, represented a mix of rich and poor, of free and slave, and people from all different nationalities. Many flocked to this up-and-coming city in an effort to enhance their status. You could get rich quick, even if it meant abusing other people, and that happened a lot in the city. Into this city of Greek worship of Epaphrodite and other gods, Paul brings the gospel of Christ. As usual, he starts in the synagogue because that's his custom, but he quickly turns to a more receptive audience, the Gentiles. 
In a city of status-seeking, idol-worshiping citizens, some Jews and some Gentiles found this gospel compelling. And a community of believers grew. Considering the hodgepodge of people drawn to Corinth, we can imagine the vast differences among these new believers. From Jews who at least had a little background for understanding Jesus, to Gentiles who had worshipped any number of gods and goddesses. Together, they represent a complicated community. The community continued to gather in homes across the city even after Paul left. After Paul, others made their way to Corinth. Apollos and Cephas came at different times. They encountered the existing church and helped spread the gospel further. Unfortunately, the introduction of these new evangelists created some division among the church. Lines had already been drawn by the time Chloe, whom we can assume represents Paul's camp, sends a letter through representatives to tell Paul all about the problem. We know almost nothing about Chloe or her people. Perhaps a group of Christians met in her home Or maybe she funded some of the church activity. Either way, she had some power in the community. From other texts, we know that Apollos spoke eloquently and with much wisdom. Perhaps in contrast to Paul, who regularly says he's not a good speaker. Interestingly, Apollos works with Paul many times and in fact is with Paul in Ephesus when Paul writes this letter back to the Corinthians. So they're not opposing each other. They work together. Cephas, who we know more as Peter, preached the gospel of Christ, but he still thought that Gentile converts needed to follow the Jewish law when they converted. And so you mix these conflicting methods and messages with the cultural context of Corinth, and it's no surprise that conflict begins pretty quickly. In this letter, Paul addresses numerous conflicts, one right after the other after the other. Leadership problems, worship practices, lawsuits, sexual ethics, spiritual gifts— And that's just a few. But he starts with a fundamental issue. The issue that if they are able to grasp it, had the power to resolve any of the conflicts they had. He starts with the powerful cross of Christ. The cross of Christ sustains our unity When our eyes remain laser-focused on the cross, there's not room for taking sides or picking fights. Have you ever been in a situation where you found it helpful to pick a focal point? I remember Lamaze class and them telling me, take something from home 
with you to the hospital and put it where you can see it so that when you're having a contraction, you can focus on that object. To this day, when I get shots or give blood, I always pick a spot on the ceiling and I just look at it while they're sticking me so that I don't get too anxious. I even use a focal point when I'm doing my balancing poses in yoga, though I have to admit they don't help me a whole lot. <laughs> Do you know why focal points work, though? They work because when your brain becomes focused on a single thing, much of the energy of the brain goes there, which leaves less energy to focus on other things like pain or falling. As my yoga teacher likes to say, where attention goes, energy flows. Now, surely Paul did not understand neuroscience, but he did know that focus influences our actions. Those focused on specific personalities like Apollos or Cephas or even Paul had less capacity for other things. And thus, division occurred. They did not have the same mind and purpose. Their misplaced focus limited them and minimized the potential power of the cross. Apparently, one of their hot-button issues had to do with baptism, or more specifically, who did the baptizing. Paul seems to ramble for a few verses, I don't know if you noticed that, about his own history of baptizing the people in Corinth. Thank goodness I only baptized two of you. Or, wait, wait, I, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, and, well, okay, maybe others, but geez, I don't remember who I baptized. That's not what I was called to do. At first glance, this account seems like a humorous senior moment of the Apostle Paul. Really, Paul, you can't remember who you baptized? On second glance, though, this is actually Paul making his point. The point isn't who baptized. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, none of that matters. Baptism represents one's entrance into the body of Christ. So it doesn't matter who baptizes you into it. It is Christ's baptism into the body. There is no such thing as baptism into Apollos or baptism into Cephas or baptism into Christine or baptism into Dave. There is only baptism into Christ. It is not ours to control or limit or mandate, only to receive. The whole community of Christ shares in it. I have to admit that all of this unity and baptism talk seems quite ironic to me today as I, a Baptist, stand in front of you Presbyterians and talk about unity knowing that our very denominations reflect responses to conflict. The number of times Baptists have split 
And Presbyterians have done the same, and Methodists have done the same, and Lutherans have done the same. It doesn't really matter which denomination you're talking about. They've all done it. All this power of the cross talk and unity talk and baptism talk might even seem a bit foolish to us in light of that. It certainly seems foolish to the world. Of course, the cross of Christ would seem foolish. It seems foolish that Jesus would give up his place in heaven to reveal himself in a vulnerable peasant infant. That he would choose to relate to the outcast, the poor, the sick, the demon-possessed, rather than the religious folk. That he would submit his divine human self to a sham trial among Jewish elites and ultimately death on the most shameful torture device of the empire. And yet, we believers call such vulnerable, self-sacrificing love powerful. So powerful that in resurrection, Jesus defeated death. The power of the cross runs counter to most of the power we see displayed in our world. The power of weapons, of wealth, of technological innovation, of political influence. While the power of the world may be seductive, it should never be the power that Christians claim. Foolish as it may seem, we must claim the power of the cross. It is the only power capable of unifying us in mind and purpose. Epiphany and the weeks following it remind us that God reveals God's self. First, God revealed through creation, its order and sustaining creativity. Then, God revealed through covenant relationship with a specific people, Israel, a nation to bless others. Then, God revealed God's self most fully through Jesus, self-giving and loving, divine and human. But the revelation did not end there. God reveals God's self today through the body of Christ, the baptized church, through you and me. Animated by the spirit of God that moves in us and through us. Recognizing God through these varied revelations demands a response from us. Revelation calls us to gospel to live in the power of the cross, and to generously share that power with others. Of course, gospeling will remain elusive in the midst of division. Will we, in unity, make the cross our focal point, or lose our concentration by fighting for our own side or our own way? Will we spend our energy revealing the power of the cross, its reconciliation and love? Or will we spend our energy bickering with each other? Will our response to the, the divisions that do crop up 
be a testimony of our desire to be of one mind and one purpose in Christ? Or will it simply confirm to the world around us that there is no real power in the cross? Be assured, Paul's words do not imply uniformity. There is a difference between unity and uniformity. The very image of the body of Christ necessitates diversity, diversity of talents and gifts and individuals. But that kind of diversity isn't easy for us, is it? And at times, that kind of diversity does lead to conflict. Additionally, Paul's words do not call us to conflict avoidance. We can't just put our heads in the sand. It cannot lead to inaction for the sake of keeping some sort of tentative peace where everyone stays calm. There have been times, and there will be more times, when taking a stand for what is right and what is Christ-like will lead to conflict. In the midst of such times, though, we will do well to ask ourselves repeatedly, what is our focal point? A focus on Christ will lead us to other clarifying questions. Do my beliefs and actions around this issue reflect the beliefs and actions of Jesus as exemplified during his lifetime? Are my beliefs and actions centered in self-giving love? Do my beliefs and actions reflect a trust in the abundance of God? Or are they based on a fear that there is not enough? That I am not enough? Am I practicing good listening skills? And responding to disagreement with humility and love? Honest reflections on such questions will serve us well in times of conflict. Many, many issues threaten division today. Politics, hot-button issues like sexual orientation and gender identity, climate issues, issues about financial resources, issues about racial discrimination. We could go on and on. These issues divide not only on a national landscape, but in many churches as well. The body of Christ in such times has an opportunity to reveal the power of the cross and to create transformation in our world. During my sermon preparation, I came across a blog by a man named Richard Lowell Bryant. Richard serves and worships in the United Methodist Church, which many of you know is currently facing significant division. In his blog, he laments their current situation. He identifies many forces at work in transforming the world today. Forest fires in Australia. Earthquakes in Puerto Rico, floods in Asia, the threat of nuclear war looming. Transformation is going to happen in our world. He wonders, though, how is the church responding? How will we respond 
Will we offer an alternative transformation? If we want to be light in the midst of such darkness, our only hope is the unity available through the power of the cross. May it be so. Amen.